0: So flipping complex, right? We have so many internal contradictions. So, like, I think that it is also possible within one person to have these competing, contradictory
1: beliefs and motivations. This is Climate Curious, the podcast for people who are bored, scared, or confused by climate change.
2: I'm Marion Pasha, the director and curator at TEDx London, and the co host of this podcast alongside the amazing Ben.
1: Hi, I'm Ben Hurst activist and advocate exploring what positive masculinities can look like and self-confessed climate normie.
2: Hi listeners, so you'll notice that I'm not with Ben this week but that is because I have gone to come to see and meet the incredible... Social innovators, change makers, activists, academics, researchers, journalists, the list goes on here at the Skull World Forum in Oxford. As part of that, I am really excited to be sitting down with Pip Wheaton from Ashoka, who is doing all things planet and climate, because you do some really cool stuff around stuff that I love, which is around how do we talk about climate, how do we communicate, how do we make change and shift things which is you know something that Ben, my coast and i have been exploring on the podcast forever so i want to ask you some questions about it i know you've done some cool research here at oxford as well that's just come out but before we get started please like properly introduce yourself to our listeners so hi i'm pip wheaton uh i'm australian but i live in new zealand Um, that's like a whole other podcast
0: yeah okay great uh and I when I'm in New Zealand I work uh, for local government so I work for Wellington City Council um and I do climate change stuff there with them uh and the other hat that I wear which is the hat that I'm wearing during this conversation um
2: is that I, I work for Ashoka. Awesome so one of the things before when we were chatting about this is you talked about the idea of being stuck in some of our work on climate tell those of us who are not as immersed in climate where you might feel we're stuck and where change isn't maybe happening in the way that it needs to i'm just i'm curious to understand like where you imagine we are at this moment in time so more than ever before um
0: we know that the the people care Um, uh, we also have more solutions than we've ever had before we've got heaps of solutions in the technology space we, we know a bunch of the like regulation solutions that need to happen there's nature-based solutions the list could go on um, and we have a better understanding of the science that we've ever had before so we know what the stakes are um, and yet even with those like leaps of not only like understanding but also of like public understanding um we're still not seeing change happen fast enough and the way that we've been looking at this is is the really human part of it so when we talk about those technological solutions like who is it that's going to be taking those new technologies and implementing them or like changing the tech that they use at the moment for these new solutions that are you know climate positive Uh, when we talk about regulations who are the who are the public officials that are going to be moving those new regulations through the you know, the, the the institutions that they work in and, and so forth. And I think we talk a lot about individual behaviour change and that's really good, that's really important. Um, but when we're talking about these big systemic changes, we, we quite often remove the, the individual nature of the fact that people need to do these changes.
2: So let's... There's a really interesting relationship here, something that we talk about here on the podcast, something that I personally kind of have been evolving my understanding around which is the interaction of the relationship the, or the responsibility between the individual and the system and I feel like there's this especially when you know you're climate curious you're starting to hear about this stuff there's this like onus given to the individual like you have to do this you have to do that you have to stop this you have to change this you have to not eat meat you know whatever it might be and then that doesn't resonate so much, and then you look at, like, systems change and moving these big, big systems where the individual maybe can't make those changes on their own, but then then you realise actually there's agency. So anyway, this, like, very convoluted question is to ask, what is this relationship? It feels difficult, like, to know how much agency and responsibility lies in each place. So there's a really interesting piece of
0: research uh, that looks at... Um, the different roles that people play or the way, like the roles through which they can have impact on, on emissions, basically um, impact on climate change. And uh, they identified five and some of them we talk about quite a lot and others we talk about far less. So the, the five are consumers. And I think that's where a lot of the individual behavior change focuses. Um, the second is citizens. So how we vote and, right. and you know, how we engage our political representatives <laughs> The third one is in our relationships. So that's like both like interpersonal, in person relationships, but also like how we show up on social media and stuff. Um, The fourth one is investment. So, like, which bank do you use? It doesn't have to be like big investment, but even like where you put your money. And then the fifth one, and this is one that I I think is probably what I find personally most interesting, is. the as organizational contributors so whether that's as a volunteer or a board member or an employee or a business owner like what your what's your influence in the organizations that you are part of and uh, like all of these have potential for contributing to systemic change or like you know when they're in aggregate when when they're all added up they can contribute to systems change but I think, particularly in our organisational roles, there's a really interesting opportunity to to make action be bigger than just
2: a single individual. Right. So it's so this is really interesting because what it's doing is it's looking at all the multiple identities that we have as a as a person, and not just assuming that we have one, and so therefore only one sphere of influence. Um, and I've so that's that's fascinating and a really different way to look at it. I think also this idea of where do you have power right How do you see that being used effectively like in in the research you've done? so in the, in the research
0: we we looked at such a diversity of different approaches so we you know it was everything from um, working with uh fishing communities um you know like subsistence fishing communities or um and helping them like become uh you know stewards of the of the um of the ecosystem uh smallholder farmers um you know neighborhoods in birmingham in in the uk um uh, like and big corporates like you know sustainability managers or even just like normal employees in in big corporates and i think that like it's interesting because, like, obviously each of those has different access to different types of powers and different levers and different influence. But at the end of the day, we have a tendency to underestimate the amount of power we have or we, we really only think of it in, like, quite um, siloed ways. Um Because like part of the and just to get a little bit philosophical for a second, like part of the part of the problem that sits underneath climate change is that we have become so individualized. This isn't a new idea, but like, you know, that we are disconnected from nature, we are disconnected from each other, we are disconnected from ourselves. when we think of ourselves as individuals, then of course we don't see the full extent of our power.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, and so a lot of the social entrepreneurs that we that we looked at that we spoke to, um, there was a really big part of the of their approaches that was about helping people really engage in a in a deeply personal way with the topic of climate change but also imagining new possibilities you know if you can't imagine a future how can you create it um and also seeing another another one of the tactics that sort of sat with that was like making progress visible so helping them see how their contribution was not actually just a single individual action but how it actually fitted into a into a bigger whole
2: so seeing that philosophical point for a second i think this is really interesting in how we imagine the individual. Because I, I asked you this question of as individual versus systemic, right? Because I didn't even think about that there could be a third option, which is like group or community or, you know, and that that actually just shows how even the, in the way that we look at this, we've we have almost forgotten the communal aspect and how that's related to power.
0: Well, I mean, so when I said the, the individual collector, like, he was the first person I ever heard say that, right? I and I that. was just like, "Oh, that makes so much sense." And like, it's not his idea, but he just but like articulated it, articulates it. Yeah. so
2: beautifully. Yeah, there's definitely something here around. Um, but this is, isn't this, isn't this the truth, though? That that the the part of me that sees oppression and injustice as a deliberate choice rather than an accidental outcome n- knows that the those in power know that if they su- separate us and make us think that we're just one that yeah. it keeps them in power longer oh absolutely like it's a very deliberate tactic it's like a very obvious thing and we just forget it because we get lost in it
0: it's it serves the the, the vested interests of the status quo I also think that there's, like... I do think that there are people who are very definitely deliberately causing harm. Right? Absolutely. I also increasingly think that the majority of people
2: who are complicit are not deliberately causing harm. I agree. I think that it's, it's, it's not... I don't think people who wake up in the morning and go to work at Shell. I don't think anyone, like below, like I don't even know what their hierarchy is, but below a certain level, wakes up in the morning and thinks I'm going to go and like, you know, w- like put out a disinformation campaign and deny climate and like hide the science and like murder like. Yes. Activist, activist. Activist. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't. I think they think, oh, I'm gonna work, and I'm gonna like do this report, and I'm gonna answer these emails, and then I'm gonna like go pick up my kid from school, and what I'm gonna make for dinner, and and that's the insidious nature of the system we're in is that those people actually don't like. What are we supposed to do, just like tell them not to work? Like they can't. They have to. So it's not even like. But then I think above a certain level, yeah. you're making an active choice. Like I think that there's an, above a certain level where you are making a decision because you could actually work somewhere else and you could do something else that would allow you to still have this quality of life that wasn't actually actively destroying the planet. Well, no, I also think it is.
0: Humans are so flipping complex, right? Yeah. we have so many yeah. internal contradictions that, like, I think that it is also possible. Within one person, to have these competing, contradictory beliefs and motivations. Yes. If you fully own up to the true extent of your own influence and power, then you need to change everything. So it's actually like a really scary thing to do. And so you're like, internally, you, uh, you create protection mechanisms. I agree. And so you don't you don't own up to it, right? And so you convince yourself that actually like I'm either I'm too small, I it's too hard, it's too late, I'm not actually part of the problem. I'm just providing the services that people need. You know, people want to drive their cars, and so we you know, you tell yourself all of these things, and I think there is a lot of
2: cognitive dissonance. That's it. And I think we really underestimate how powerful cognitive dissonance actually is in how it drives our behavior. So when I think
0: about this stuff. I quite often find it useful to like pull up examples of people that I have worked with or have known and have like engaged with them around climate change because like all of this is about making it personal, right? Like, yes. And so actually having ideas of specific individuals who have struggled or not made decisions or have made decisions in ways that are useful, I find really helpful to then try and go, okay, so what would they need? Yeah. And so this one person I'm thinking of in particular, um, they are in a position of huge influence the the really interesting thing for me when i was when i was working with this person was to see how often we would get so close to doing something like transformative and then like at the 11th hour they would get cold feet and there would always be a really like convenient reason why we couldn't do the really bold thing wow and one of the things that it taught me which like which I carry through into my work now is that like sometimes the work is to make courageous decisions not feel courageous like actually like interesting de-risk these things for the for the people who who need to be doing things differently
1: Before we continue, we wanted to tell you about the second best climate podcast. I'm joking, I'm joking. We wanted to tell you about a podcast that we absolutely love. Seriously, we love it. It's called Outrage and Optimism. It's a useful weekly guide for anybody wanting to make sense of the complexity of the climate conversation. So, whether you're suffering from climate grief or anxiety... (laughs) guilty or you are already fired up full of hope and ready to take action or even if you're like somewhere in between like most of us are this podcast will help you navigate your feelings of outrage and of optimism and leave you feeling informed and inspired it's hosted by one of our personal heroes Christiana Figueres, and some other guys no i'm joking and some pretty cool people tom rivet karnak and paul dickinson and the trio will be sharing their expertise their insights and their humour with the world's climate thought leaders. Search Outrage and Optimism wherever you get your podcasts. We would definitely, in fact, take this as our recommendation that you check it out. And remember, stay curious.
2: So I've heard this, you know, where people talk about like the social cover that politicians need to be able to take the actions or how, you know, um... Uh, someone I worked with was talking about the the letter that all those businesses wrote to President Biden when he came into office saying, like, you know, it was like in the Wall Street Journal, right? And it was like all of these big, big American companies saying, take climate action. And it gave him the business cover to do do it. So I I totally understand that idea that sometimes, even when people want to act, they need something that makes it not feel like they're being really, really brave. And this was actually one of the tactics that we saw in the research. Okay. Right. So tell me first, before we, tell me a bit about the research. Like, what is it? What did you, what did you set out to look into? Right. So we, we set out to look into, um, so
0: if, if we, if we take as the starting point that we need everyone, right, that we yes. need as many people doing things differently as possible, so, so much so that it's like, it is actually everyone. Um, we wanted to look at the approaches that social entrepreneurs were using to help people on that journey to proactively driving change, right? And I think there's a big difference between, and and we saw in the research, there is a big difference between approaches that get people to do a thing, right, such that, like, it is clearly delineated and, like, you know, if the social... Isolates. Yeah, Yeah. leaves and, like, they stop doing the thing. um, And getting people to proactively drive change themselves. Mm. And uh, they're both needed, because we need everything. Um, but we were really interested in that, in that second approach. And uh, and what we wanted to do was we were like, if we choose a diverse enough group of social entrepreneurs, both like diverse in terms of like geography, the types of change, um, the types of individuals that they were working with, um, if we could identify commonalities in the strategies and tactics that they used, then maybe those strategies and tactics might be useful in other contexts. Mm. Um, and uh, what we found was, was three different strategies and each of them has different tactics yeah. that, that contribute to them. But the three strategies were making it personal, curating support and realigning systems. So if we think about the letter that the businesses wrote to, to Biden, that would fall under the curating support mm. strategy and it was a, a tactic that we, that we called helping them make the case. And we saw this in a lot of different ways, but a a really good example of it, we saw um, in the organization Canopy, Um, the
2: Shoker Fellow's name is Nicole Rycroft, um, and she's brilliant. Can you you give me an example of making it personal and then realising systems as well? One of the things about all of these strategies
0: is that none of them on their own is enough. Okay. Okay. Like one organisation can choose to focus on one as long as the other things are happening within the context right, around them. Right. But the place that we saw them come together most powerfully was when the social entrepreneurs we were interviewing actually wove a number of different strategies together in ways that were suitable for the, for the context. A brilliant example to, um, to bring this to life is um, a wonderful uh, organisation called Civic Square in Birmingham, uh, the Shoka fellow who started it. Her name is Amy Kerr. So Civic Square puts neighbourhoods at the forefront of their own climate transition, mm-hmm. and uh, w- one of the things that underpins that work is a deep belief that people can come up with solutions to even the naughtiest of problems. Right, and the you know, something as complex and technical as climate change can often seem like really off-putting. So one of the things that they do is is they, they have a layer of their work that they call the dream matter. Oh, I love it. Um, and that's all about like giving people ways to engage with the complexity of climate change in ways that really deeply resonates. Um, so they've done things like they've localised the Donut Economics Framework for the neighbourhood. Um, they got people to make zines of the IPCC report. I mean, just <laughs> brilliant. Um, and all of these are way that, ways that help people really build understanding. Mm. Um, but another thing that they do in this part of the work is they you know, they bring people together to collectively imagine different possibilities of what the right. neighbourhood could look like. Um They do all sorts of other things in this space, but but for me, that all translates to what we called in our research making it personal. Okay. Another part of what they do is um, looking at the sort of the rules and the codes that um, underpin the way that the world works. Stuff that's like really often like invisible to us as we go about our daily lives. Um, and they've had to, you know, because what they're trying to do is they're trying to get neighbourhoods to come together and collectively take action, right. they realised quite quickly that that involved creating different contracts, creating different financing yes, mechanisms. Yes. Um, and if we take the, the, the language that we use in the, in the research, that for us was about realigning systems. Okay. Um, and then the third part of their work, which we sort of map onto the, the curating support piece, comes together in what they call the, the everyday... Um, the everyday matter and that's really about how they turn up in the community day after day is like a consistent presence right. rain, hail, shine, oh, yeah. they are there and if people just drop in for a cup of tea that's fine oh, yeah. if one person comes in a day that's fine um, but they are there reliably and the thing that that um, that really struck me like, was one of the surprises of the research is the importance of um, injecting consistent, sustained energy into this really stuck system. Right. Because shifting inertia requires
2: a huge amount of energy. Right. And that was one of the things that we saw the social entrepreneurs doing. How fascinating. First of all, just such an incredible project. So those findings, I think, really are clear for me when I think about how organizations can or communities can show up in this and the things, like, the tools that they can use and the techniques they can use to bring about change, right? Because that's what, that, that if I'm hearing right, like, that's what these three things do, right, is they actually let, help us get unstuck. They move us faster in a more sustainable, equitable, and, like, durable way. How do I, or if someone is listening... How do I do this? How do I implement this when I do feel like I'm this sole individual? What is, like, have there been, you know, in the entrepreneurs with Ashoka that you've, you, you know, the social entrepreneurs with Ashoka that you've, you've been researching or just in general since you've come up with these findings? How does that, how has that manifested? How have you thought about that?
0: So the the thing that I think is um, important here is that this is in relation, right? So the social entrepreneurs that we were that we were studying they were activating other people right right oh. and so it was in relationship with others right right so the way that we've been thinking about these findings is that we want them to be useful to other people who are trying to shift people that they are in relationship right. with whether right. it's um in community in
2: businesses in what when I was listening to you I was thinking to myself you know I bet you there are people who really want to because I think that like I'm going to speak on behalf of my co-host here. But, you know, when Ben and I started on this journey together, I was a little bit further down the climate path than him, but not much. And so we've been on this like two and a half year journey together. And so now I think actually about uh, in terms of in relation to the people in our lives, people do come and talk to us or we do try to go talk to people about climate. And so actually, I think there will be people listening who are similarly... Starting to have that light bulb moments and starting to want to talk to people around them, and and it can be tough if the people around you are like whatever. And this is feels like it gives people some real practical how information.
0: Yeah, and I think the like the core of it when when you're thinking about the one on one relationship right. with with people that you that you care about that you're in like a sustained relationship with. Um, I think it's about speaking to emotions.
2: Yep. Um, this is, That's the mainly under making it personal, yeah, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, you know, climate change is such a technical topic, but when we talk about the technicalities, you trigger this frame of, like, well, experts need to fix this. Yes. And I'm not an expert. And if you talk about it in terms of, like, the catastrophic impacts, if you don't then have a clear call to action, you can trigger this, like, doom and gloom. It's too big, it's too yes. late. Um, frame and so I think that if you can tap into the emotions which you know it's it's not to say that that won't necessarily include mm. some fear but tap into the the other emotions too like care mm. care is such a powerful one what are the people and places and things that you care about yeah and for me I often think that climate action is a form of care
2: that's so beautiful yeah yeah I think that will resonate with people too because I think that care is so human and it's something that I would say 98% of us probably do in our lives towards another person even if it's you know it doesn't have to be like a kid like your your like your maybe it's your parents maybe it's your best friends maybe it's like you know there's so many relationships where care is is there how especially given your role in local government with you know with the other work you do what's your either plan or hope around how this research might live in the world. Right. So our hope is that we can, um, in the
0: coming months, uh, write it up into some sort of like really action-oriented, very practical, um, I don't know, playbook, toolkit. For something usable. But something usable. Um, and so to do that, like we, we want to sort of make sure that there's really rich examples um, and hopefully like some some useful questions to help people you know, prompt them to think about the context that they're operating in. Like, really think: um, who are the individuals? What makes them tick? What do they care about? Um, how can I make this really personal for them? Um, and uh, and and help them think through what might be needed.
2: I'm very excited for your toolkit because I feel like I will use it, um, and we will use it at Alex London. I want to also understand something because we actually, when we met at, here at the forum, we were talking to each other about the work we do around storytelling and narratives and, and, and that. And I, I'm curious to know how this research is going to tie into some of the work you're going to be doing around narratives.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that's like central to this research is like the concept of agency, how a person believes that they can impact the world. And uh, our beliefs are shaped by so many different things. Um, and as we dug into that more, we started to engage with the concept of narratives. Mm. And, and when we use the word narratives, like because I think there's lots of different ways to interpret it, what, what we mean by that is, like, what are the collective stories that we tell as a society that help us make sense of the world and therefore shape how we move through it? Yes. And to be clear, like, narratives are... Fluid, they ebb and flow. We can have like internally inconsistent narratives yep. that we believe at any one time. Like it's really fascinating. Um, but one of the pieces of research that I that I came across showed that um, specifically for climate action, yep. people's belief about whether or not change was possible was the biggest determinant of whether or not they acted and so at the moment we are in this this point in time where the dominant narrative is around doom and gloom and you know it's 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 really important that we've got into the place that people are starting to wake up and go oh, my goodness, climate change is real. It's not a future generation mm. thing. It's happening now. Mm, mm, it's mm. happening in fires in Australia, in California, in Siberia. It's happening in flooding in New Zealand In this year, and heat domes and, and changes to our really? rainfall patterns. That are Ident- clearly identifiable things. Things that people go, oh, that. Yes. That thing, that's climate change. That's great. We needed that moment of awakening collectively. However, if we stay in that place of doom and gloom, we stay overwhelmed and we don't believe that change is possible. And if we don't believe that change is possible, that belief becomes self-fulfilling basically. And so the thing that we're really curious about is like, if if that's the the narrative of doom and gloom and that's going to stop action, then what are the narratives of climate agency
2: that help people
0: realise their power?
2: Okay, this is very interesting. Um, one of my favorite quotes, actually, is that you can't depress people into action, which I think is so accurate. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, I and in so much of the work I do, I, where I'm working with climate activists, scientists, etc., people who've been in this field for decades, the mind shift that they have to make from the work they've had to do tirelessly to convince people it's a problem. To where they have to be now, which is to show people how we can solve this, is really difficult, and a lot of people are still stuck in the the problem loop. Like you just just don't know how bad it is. You just don't know. Like it's it's bad. It's bad. And I find myself getting stuck in that loop sometimes, Me too. because when you're talking to someone who's like. You'd be like, you should be crying right now. Like, if you were not crying, I need to get worse and worse. you you just be like, do you understand the, the level of this? But what I am curious to know, and maybe I don't know if you guys have thought about this or if it's part of this work, is so there is that doom and gloom narrative that needs to change to this, like, agent, possible these are the solutions, this is how we're going to do this, we can do this, we've done hard things in the past, etc. But there's this third one that's seeming to emerge, which is the deliberate use of misinformation by actors who are entrenched in the current system to make it seem confusing and difficult. And this is something that someone said to me recently, and I was like, yeah, that's like a classic playbook, isn't it? Um, first you deny it, and then you make it say it's complicated. How does this? How does that play out into the, all of this? There is
0: the most brilliant academic article called "The Discourses of Climate Delay." Oh, that has I like it already. Been turned into my favorite cartoon image that has like so. They basically they found twelve archetypes of the like the different arguments of delay, the discourses of delay. And a cartoonist turned each of those 12 into, like, a caricature person. Incredible. It's the most awesome image. Um, and I also just love the, like, taking academic research and making it into, like, something, like, yes, engaging and humorous and irreverent. And, um, but the interesting thing is, like, when they were doing this this research, um, it wasn't always the vested interests that were pushing these these different right. discourses, like, sometimes it's super well-intentioned. And it's funny, like, I sometimes listen to, because you know, people often play me stuff or show me stuff or right. talk to me about, like, you know, but this is why it's hard and da, da da And I quite often, like, use the 12 discourses as almost like a bingo card. I think one of the interesting things is, like, there's so much stuff going on in the in the digital space. There is disinformation. There is misinformation. Yes. There's also, the, like, the targeting of the the climate activists. Yeah in ways that make them feel like the cost of taking action is too high personally, yeah. so things like doxing or, like, you know, threats of real-world harm.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, that's real, and, like, you know, when we were talking earlier about, like, you know, most people are just, you know, they're, they're actually it's just cognitive dissonance or they're just sort of doing their job or whatever. That stuff doesn't come from that. That stuff actually comes from people who are oh, yeah, trying deliberately. to deliberately deliberate harm in the world. And I think the, you know, the fossil fuel companies are throwing millions and millions of dollars into this. Um, and, uh, and the, the climate the action side of the, of the... I'm trying to not use a battleground analogy. So the fossil fuel companies are throwing millions and millions and millions of dollars into this every year. And on the other side of the equation we aren't really taking the same approach you know we're yes. with we're, we're not playing with the same playbook yeah and I'm I'm really curious to see what are the like very practical things that we can do to shift that and, and whether it's like comms campaigns or different types of culture and arts and media or if it's like different legislation
2: that yeah. helps tell a different story like I think all of these tools need to be used. Because it's not, and this is the thing that was a real aha moment for me, is is it's not that you are just trying to move people who are stationary to being unstationary. You're trying to move people and communities and societies that are actively being pulled in the other direction. Like, there is a pull factor. There's someone, someone, not someone, but like there are you know, actors and individuals who are not just entrenched incumbents. It's not like they're just standing there very strongly. They're actually pulling in the other direction. They're putting things in motion that take us in the other direction. And I think, you know, um, in really insidious ways. Yeah, and I think it's
0: everything from, like, the way that they test the messaging to see what works. Like, they do really, like, quite deliberate, quite sophisticated things to test which messages sow this descent, sow this, yeah. like, that catch fire and spread. They also have, like, done things like they've captured COP, right? Like, the COP28 is being headed up by a, an oil company CEO. And, you know, people can say that that doesn't matter. But, like, just this week, I think, there was a press release about how, you know, if we're not really focusing on carbon capture and storage, then, you know, we're going to lose the battle against climate change. It's like yes we absolutely need to be thinking about negative emissions but all of the negative emissions technologies are far harder not actually proven at scale they're far more expensive and simultaneously we know how to reduce our emissions right so why would we be doing these expensive unproven things when we already have proven less expensive options on the table
2: this has been an incredible conversation i i just feel like I'm very happy that my co-host wasn't here so that I got to ask you all the questions this week. This has been Climate Curious. Remember, stay curious.
1: Thank you for joining us this week. We really hope you enjoyed this episode.
2: If you did, please hit the follow button to make sure you get next week's release.
1: We are now officially crowdsourcing Climate Confessions, so please leave yours in the ratings and the review section and we'll shout out to you next time. And shout out to our fabulous team behind the pod.
2: This episode was produced by Josie Coulter. Artwork designed by Rebecca Mingus.
1: Curation by Mariam Pasha.
2: Mixed and engineered by Ben Beheshti.
1: Music also by Ben Beheshti. Presented by Ben Hurst. And Mariam Pasha. Remember, stay curious.